giving you Professor Michael here. Thank you very much, Robbie. I especially want to thank everybody for not leaving when he mentioned I was a pundit. Um, you, can, you can, however, leave if you want. Um, I am uh, also particularly grateful for the opportunity uh, to be here today and, and for your attendance. Um, I am going to speak, as uh, Robbie mentioned, um, Constitution out, outside the court. I should just confess at the outset that this is my um, third speech in three days. On Monday, I, I spoke at Rutgers about the filibuster. On Tuesday... I spoke at the University of North Carolina about the filibuster. And today, as I prepare to speak, you might think I'm about to talk about the filibuster. Well, irony demands that I talk about the filibuster. Um, So I will, but I will not talk about it until uh, near the close of my remarks uh, today. I'll use it as a prime example of the Constitution outside the court. Uh, It is certainly one of the most recent uh, manifestations of that uh, important subject. I should also acknowledge at the outset what a particular honor it is to be at what I think is the ideal place to talk about the Constitution outside the court, and that's Princeton University. There's really no better place uh, to talk about the Constitution outside the court. If you want to understand the significance of constitutional activity, apart from constitutional adjudication, one needs to look no further than what the graduates, students, and faculty at Princeton have done over the years in public service. From James Madison to Woodrow Wilson, to Bill Bradley, Bill Frist, to Donald Rumsfeld, to Bruce Reed, to Robert Mueller. Nobody understands the Constitution outside the court better than these people. There are others, Princeton's distinguished faculty, um, some of whom are here today, and I'm very grateful for that, um, have performed the vastly underappreciated enterprise of analyzing our Constitution in perhaps the most important forum outside the court, the classroom as well as through their publications and unequaled public service. Consider how rare the opportunity is this great institution affords for serious, thoughtful, and probing discussion about the Constitution, its history, its flaws, its virtues, and its meaning. Princeton students and faculty have a unique advantage in this dialogue. Without a law school, you are more blessed than you know. (laughs) And I see Chris here, and I acknowledge his eminence and I appreciate his being here. You are able to have a dialogue that is focused less on the narrow realm in which the court operates, but more on the broader, more significant domain in which the American people interact with political leaders in the ongoing process of implementing and understanding our Constitution. The notion that the judiciary, particularly the Supreme Court, is the final arbiter of constitutional meaning is, at least to me, a sad fact of constitutional life. I say sad because it comes at the expense of discounting what I consider to be equally, if not more significant, constitutional activity. Legal scholars are uniquely invested in the legitimacy of the court, or what some have called the cult of the court. They conceive law and politics, at least what we understand as ordinary everyday politics, as two distinct realms. The institution they consider is largely responsible for maintaining this divide is the Supreme Court. They believe that Supreme Court justices are uniquely able to rise above partisanship in ordinary politics to make principled judgments about constitutional interpretation because they're specially trained and insulated from from political retaliation against their decisions. Their duty is, in the famous words of William & Mary's own John Marshall, to say what the law is. Legal scholars have less confidence 
and the ability of members of Congress or even presidents to render principled as opposed to expedient constitutional judgments. They expect politicians, even when confronting constitutional questions, merely to vote their personal policy preferences or to construe the law, including the Constitution, in whatever ways maximize their institutional or self-interest. My purpose today is to make a case for a fundamental shift in perspective in analyzing our Constitution. My purpose is to show how constitutional activity outside the court is more critical, or at least as critical, to establishing constitutional meaning over time as what the courts do. Several issues are pertinent to this objective. The first is to clarify the extent of constitutional decision-making outside the court. It's so vast as to dwarf the constitutional output of the third branch. The second is to develop criteria for evaluating the quality of the constitutional decision-making outside the court. With low expectations about the quality of constitutional deliberation outside the court, legal scholars largely relieve themselves of the necessity of understanding by what means our national leaders formulate constitutional judgments and how well they employ the means for formulating such judgments to shape the content and direction of constitutional law. Third, a critical component left out of almost every effort to construct a coherent account of constitutional law is what I call non-judicial precedent. Few scholars, with the notable exception of my friend Keith Whittington, whom I also see here today, uh, appreciate the significance of presidential and congressional constitutional judgments to the construction of constitutional meaning. I suggest such judgments, which often take the form of historical practices, constitute surprisingly durable precedent. Last but not least, I'll address the relationship between the Constitution outside the court and the Constitution inside the court. In my view, it is the Constitution outside the court that secures in the long run what the Constitution will mean. To begin with, the extensiveness of the constitutional decision-making outside the court is daunting. As any student of constitutional law knows, the Supreme Court cannot and does not reach out to decide all questions of constitutional meaning that it would like to, to decide. It has to wait for constitutional questions to come to it. Even then, not all matters litigated before the federal courts end up in the Supreme Court and the court doesn't agree to decide all the questions brought to it. Even in an era of judicial supremacy, as many commentators like to characterize our personal pr present period, this means that every question of constitutional law that comes before the court has already been considered elsewhere, and usually by more than one authority, including members of Congress, state authorities, federal authorities, including the president, and federal departments or agencies. Every other question of constitutional law has been left to the discretion of non-judicial authorities. Thus, it should be clear that the court deals with only a tiny fraction of the constitutional questions decided by other authorities. Coming to grips with the extensiveness of the constitutional activity outside the court is one thing. Fewer, I think, ever really do this, though coming to grips with the different means through which national political leaders express and formulate their judgments is quite another. Over time, the court's output seems impressive but the court actually produces far fewer decisions each year about constitutional law than do either members of Congress or the president. And justices and just judges express their opinions about the Constitution through far more restrictive means than members of Congress, presidents, and state officials, and legislative officials. Whereas judges and justices express their constitutional opinions primarily in their formal decisions and only occasionally in speeches, articles, and books, state and national political leaders express and formulate their opinions about the Constitution in the extensive domain outside the court through far more diverse media, including but not limited to formal speeches, committee hearings and reports, the congressional record, or records of state legislative proceedings, correspondence, interviews, diaries, campaigns, editorials, articles, and books. 
Moreover, they, unlike judges and justices, are not restricted in what, what they may take into account in formulating their constitutional judgments or the people with whom they may consult in shaping their judgments. They become the conduits for a conceivably endless stream of constitutional commentary outside the court by priority leaders, public intellectuals, pundits other than me, academics, and interest groups. With the immense domain of constitutional activity and expression outside the court are some of the most dramatic events of our lifetime. Sketching these helped to put the Constitution outside the court in perspective. Just within the last 30 or so years, we've had seven presidents. We've replaced all nine justices on the Supreme Court. Three presidents have been alleged to have committed impeachable offenses, with one resigning in disgrace and another becoming the first popularly elected president ever to be impeached by the House and acquitted in an impeachment trial by the Senate. The House is impeached, and the Senate has convicted and removed three federal judges from office. We've had the first presidential election in over a century, in which the victor lost the popular vote. The Senate has conducted four strongly contested nominations to the Supreme Court. We find ourselves in the midst of the second longest period in our history, without a vacancy arising on the court, and thus have been experiencing an acute, if not unprecedented, level of anxiety about judicial appointments. Dozens of judicial nominees have been denied final action in the Senate on their nominations because of opposition based on concerns about the nominees' ideologies. The, the Senate has allowed an unprecedented number of successful filibusters against lower court nominations. I told you I, I was going to get there. A new amendment has been added to the Constitution. The nation endured the most devastating domestic terrorist attack in our history, and in response to that attack, the Congress has put together arguably the most ambitious scheme ever for investigating, uncovering, and punishing potential terrorist activity against the United States. The Congress has approved the second most extensive reorganization of the federal government in history. The nation has been engaged in three wars in the Middle East, with perhaps more on the horizon. And the President and the Congress have, have wrestled with and explored the political, ethical, and constitutional implications of advancements in medical and reproductive technology. The seriousness of these developments coupled with the remarkable extensiveness of the constitutional activity outside the court, requires we devote at least as much attention to how and well institutions other than the court make, deci make decisions about the Constitution as we do to how and what the court decides. Legal scholars, perhaps like most people, tended to revere the office of the presidency, even when they dislike particular presidents. Their reverence is due in part both to the favors that a president may bestow, such as judgeships, and to the fact that the president is the most potentially dangerous official in our legal system because he is unquestionably the most dangerous. They appreciate, excuse me, most powerful. They appreciate the unique reserves of expertise on which a president can draw in deliberating upon constitutional matters. When legal scholars consider further a president's special authority to veto legislation, to determine enforcement priorities, and to appoint Supreme Court justices, legal scholars invest a presidential declaration on the Constitution with far more significance and seriousness than they treat corresponding statements from members of Congress. The attitude of the legal commu community to the Congress is perhaps best reflected by the fact that less than a handful have ever bothered to question, much less challenge, the blanket indictment made almost 20 years ago by then-Circuit Judge Abner Mikva against the competency of Congress to undertake constitutional interpretation. He argued members of Congress lack the time, interest, resources, and ability to engage in meaningful constitutional analysis. His criticism was especially disturbing because he had served for many years in the House of Representatives. The view of most legal scholars of the Constitution, I think, is either exaggerated or mistaken. 
A more accurate, sophisticated view of the Constitution outside the court may be attained by following the lead of some political scientists who develop criteria for understanding and evaluating how presidents and members of Congress discharge their respective duties. There's no better person to whom to go for such guidance on presidential performance, of course, than Fred Greenstein here at Princeton, who's proposed analyzing such performance in terms of six different qualities, one of which includes the capacity to design, I'm quoting, effective institutional arrangements. With his leave, it's not hard to adapt these criteria to measure the constitutional significance of different presidencies. For help in evaluating the Congress, we can turn to another political scientist, a former professor of mine, David Mayhew. In a recent book, Mayhew set out to measure congressional entrepreneurship by examining the range and impact of members of Congress within the public sphere. This measure has special relevance for evaluating the constitutional activity of members of Congress. He explains, quote, as I gathered my data set, I was struck by how often I came across actions of members of Congress that raised or provoked would look like constitutional questions, ones about the geographic extent, organizational structure, autonomy from foreign intrusions or commitments, operating rules. There's the filibuster again, by the way. Citizenship fights, boundaries between state and society, or basic, basic political economy of the United States regime. The extent of constitutional questions addressed by members of Congress was so extensive as to lead Mayhew to observe, quote, a common move in contemporary political science is to treat constitutionals constitutions as exogenous. That is, to stipulate that they exist and then go on with the business of tracking the normal politics centering on economic policy that takes place under their rules. In my view, this can be a historical and analytic mistake. Constitutions do not seem to march through time unattended by politicians. In the United States, it's impossible to comprehend the role of the House and the Senate members without seeing them, at least sometimes, as performers at a constitutional level. Constitutional law scholar David Curry echoes this comment, uh, echoes this uh, sentiment at the end of his survey of the Constitution outside the court in the first half of the 19th century. Look, he suggests, not to the judges, who like blossoms at the whim of the capricious butterfly pollinate the constitutional fields now and then, according to the vagaries of litigation. Instead, go to school with presidents, with cabinet, cabinet ministers, with members of Congress who grapple with constitutional conundrums every day, in every action they contemplate, in every exercise of their official function. So, how well have presidents and members of Congress performed constitutional decision-making? And this is where I will talk about the filibuster. Well, as fate would have it, the first president of, uh, president of the United States to challenge the filibuster was Princeton's second graduate to become president, Woodrow Wilson. As the distinguished pre Princeton graduate Robert Carroll explains in his biography of Lyndon Johnson, from 1806 until 1917, the only way that debate within the Senate could be ended was by unanimous consent. In 1917, the Senate formally curbed the filibuster for the first time, after 11 senators had successfully filibustered Wilson's proposal to arm American merchantmen against German submarine attacks. President Wilson performed well under a number of pro uh, Professor Greenstein's criteria in retaliating against the filibuster. He organized and led a public campaign to, de to denounce the filibuster as anti-democratic. And he built up a remarkable support within the Senate to pass 76 to 3, what we've come to know as Rule 22, which allows debate upon a legislative matter to be terminated when after a petition for such closure was presented by 16 senators and approved by two-thirds of the senators present and waiting, and present and voting. President George W. Bush took a different tack in condemning the dilatory tactics the Democrats have employed against several of his judicial nominees. 
Late last fall, he took to the campaign trail throughout the South to lambast the Democrats for their obstruction. He called for his supporters to, in select Southern states to return to the Senate, to return the Senate to the control of the Republicans, who could then, he promised, treat his nominees more expeditiously and fairly. His strategy paid off. His campaigning helped to return the Senate to Republican control. It ended up, however, provoking the Democrats to filibuster several of his nominations, including those of Miguel Estrada, Priscilla Owen, and William Pryor. Just recently, as you may know, um, Estrada withdrew uh, his nomination, and thus we are now left actually with one or two filibusters. One difficulty is you can never quite tell whether you've got a filibuster going, but that is the subject of another talk. The Senate, for its part, has had a relatively long history of dealing with the filibuster. Mayhew identifies 15 instances in which members of Congress took notable stands on the filibuster within the public sphere. His survey ended at the turn of the century. If one were to pick up the story where he has left it, one would quickly discover renewed efforts in 2003 to shape attitudes about the constitutionality of the filibuster. These efforts are noteworthy in at least three respects. First, it's hard to ignore the general hypocrisy of senators on this question. For Democrats and Republicans have largely reversed their positions. In the 1990s, Democrats formally opposed the, the filibuster. They asked Republicans to study it, and they had put forward a proposal. In response to the proposal, the Republicans appointed a commission, which then studied it, and after that, nothing else was done. Earlier this year, Senator Frist took that proposal and put it before the Rules Committee. The only problem is the same Republicans who were uh, defending the filibuster in the 1990s uh, began denouncing it as unconstitutional. And as a test, uh, that would seem to suggest um, something less than principle uh, is at work. It's not unusual for filibusters to be made against presidential nominations. The first filibuster was made against a um, judicial nomination in 1881. It was President Hayes' nomination of Stanley Matthews uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, subsequently, we've had filibusters against all kinds of presidential nominations, including successful ones uh, against Abe Fortas' nomination as Chief, as Chief Justice in 1968, and also President Clinton's nomination of Sam Brown as ambassador and Henry Foster as Solicitor General, excuse me, as Surgeon General. Um, also in the 1990s, there were over a dozen filibusters against judicial nominations that were backed by, among others, the Senate Majority Leader. My second response is only a few senators have become seriously involved in the debate over the legitimacy of the filibuster. The records of prior debates on the filibusters reflect the complexity of the challenges to its legitimacy. And the good news is I will spare you the details of these arguments. Uh, I spent two hours in my class on Congress and the presidency talking about the filibuster, and it looked as if everybody had just been either drinking for hours or had somehow <laughs> not slept for days or whatever. So I've decided that it's not something I'd rather do, at least when I'm a visitor. Um, the problem with these arguments is, of course, they're not just complex. They really don't lend themselves easily to sound bites or to popular understanding. 
Besides the majority leader, only a few other Republicans have been actively involved in openly condemning the filibuster. They include John Cornyn from Texas, who once served on the Texas Supreme Court with one of the nominees who's being filibustered, and Trent Lott as chair of the Rules Committee. On the Democratic side, Tom Daschle, Christopher Dodd, Robert Byrd, and Charles Schumer have spoken at length publicly in defense of the filibuster. In fact, I was at a hearing in which Trent Lott took some delight in quoting from uh, Tom Daschle when he was uh, minority leader and opposing the filibuster, to which Daschle then responded with a defense of the filibuster based on quotes from Trent Lott. Um, that is generally what we call a stalemate. The problem is that with so few filibusters front and center on the question, it should not be surprising that the challenge to the filibuster has not fared so well. Third, the debate over the filibuster may tell us something significant about the institutional safeguards within the Senate for ensuring the quality of constitutional discourse. I suggest one of those safeguards is, in fact, the Senate's rules. Rule 22 allows a filibuster, bizarrely enough, to a motion to amend Rule 22, a filibuster which may be ended only if a supermajority of at least two-thirds of the Senate vote to invoke, vote to, to invoke closure. Now, that's it. That's as technical as I get, just recounting that rule to you. This is not an impossible hurdle to meet, as the closure rule has been amended several times in accordance with the rules of the Senate. Yet no supermajority appears ready today to amend Rule 22 for whatever reason. It is possible that Rule 22 is designed to protect the institution of the Senate itself from expedient constitutional challenges or dialogue, excuse me, from expedient constitutional challenges by conditioning a change on arguments with widespread bipartisan consensus. The rules are designed to encourage arguments made in the best interest of the institution, not just those of the majority party that are good for only one day only. One of your distinguished graduates in legal academia, Phil Bobbitt at the University of Texas Law School, has characterized the filibuster as a classic example of the Constitution outside the court. As I've suggested, it is, however, an extremely complex uh, topic. What most people know about the filibuster is based on the filibuster employed near the end of the film by yet another Princeton graduate, Jimmy uh, Stewart, and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I will also tell you that seems to be the case in the United States Senate. Um, there are many people who don't understand the rules and not even clear about what the rules for the filibuster are. I was at a hearing um, at which uh, Senator Dodd and Senator um, Lott and even Senator Daschle did not know and could not remember whether the Senate actually votes on the rules. I said I didn't think the Senate ever votes on the rules at the outset of a session, and then they started disagreeing with each other as to whether or not that happens. And I at least said, well, that tells me that it's not a very memorable thing. <laughs> um, and that might be pertinent to, um, you know, to the situation that's currently in front of the Senate. It's also not clear why, as a policy matter, the filibuster is a sensible thing. I mean, why is endless debate uh, necessarily a good thing? The typical defense of the filibuster is that it encourages consensus. It promotes stability within the Senate. Nevertheless, Every effort to amend the filibuster has been only has been when it's been successful in accordance with the rules. There's never been a moment when the filibuster has been uh, modified without the Senate 
following the rules. And one complication with the current effort to amend the filibuster is it's based on going outside the rules to amend the filibuster, one of the complications. There's another complication, and it's historical practices. To what extent should historical practices, such as those I've just mentioned, be relevant for constitutional meaning? As a comment on James Madison's decision to support the National Bank because of its recognition as legitimate by preceding presidents and congresses, Gary Wills asks rhetorically, quote, unconstitutional things become, unconstitution become constitutional if they're accepted as such, unquote. It's reasonable to question relevance of longevity to the constitutionality of a practice, given that some longstanding practices, such as segregation, are unconstitutional, while others, such as the National Bank, may be constitutional. A notable exception is Yale Law School professor Bruce Ackerman, who's conceived of constitutional change in terms of rare moments in which the American people join with their leaders to alter the Constitution in enduring ways without going through the formal processes of Article V in the Constitution. Ackerman alone tries to integrate historical practices, practices into a theory of constitutional change. While intriguing and provocative, legal scholars have overwhelmingly denounced the theory, not the least of which is the rather uh, unappealing fact that only one person, Bruce Ackerman, seems to be able to identify a constitutional moment. The deficiencies of Ackerman's theory should not lead us to ignore the reasonableness of his objective. He's recognized the constitutional theory of it's to be a comprehensive account of how constitutional law is made and ought to be made has to explain the relevance of historical practices. This quest requires us to consider whether there's anything in our national political process that corresponds to judicial precedent. The question is whether there's such a thing as non-judicial precedent to which political authorities, if not courts, ought to defer. I want to suggest briefly there is such a thing as non-judicial precedent and show how it helps. Yes, it is. Yeah, I'm coming back to it how it helps to clarify the constitutionality of the filibuster. First, as a descriptive matter, there's no doubt at all there's such a thing as non-judicial precedent. For more than two centuries, the Supreme Court has recognized the relevance of historical practices for determining the legitimacy of some constitutional actions. Presidents and members of Congress have repeatedly recognized the, the potential and significance of their and their predecessors' actions and judgments as precedents. George Washington consulted early and often with Madison about how he should proceed as president because he understood that what he did as the nation's first chief executive would establish precedence for subsequent presidents. Senators have also recognized that the historic practices, historical practices within their own institution effectively establish precedence. These precedents include constitutional judgments on a wide range of substantive and procedural matters. Recall that the vast majority of what members of Congress decide are either not subject to or either not subject to judicial review or are subject to judicial review under such a deferential standard that it is effectively meaningless. What this means then is that as a practical matter, the constitutional judgments of members of Congress about what bills what bills they vote for, what bills they vote against, and other matters uh, are often decisive. Senators also have recognized that each senator retains the authority to make his or her own judgments on the questions, uh, own constitutional judgments, um, on the questions that come before the Senate. Thus, senators have historically reached their own judgments about, for instance, the relevance of ideology in confirmation proceedings, the burden of proof in a vote on whether to approve a presidential nomination, and the burden of proof in the rules of evidence in impeachment proceedings. The normative weight 
of a non-judicial precedent within the Senate is a function of the extent to which a senator chooses to defer or not to defer to it. The fact to which I've alluded before is that the Senate invariably has amended its rules in accordance with its rules, and that fact carries great weight in the Senate. The normative weight of a non-judicial precedent outside the Senate, of course, is a different matter, and one over which the Senate understandably has very limited control. It may control the extent to which other authorities defer to its practices primarily by providing persuasive authority for them. Thus, the Senate has an institutional incentive to invest resources in constructing a persuasive case for non-judicial precedents so that both the public and other branches have confidence in their constitutional judgments. As a practical matter, the officials and other branches remain free, however, to disagree with either the outcomes of Senate proceedings or the basis for the Senate action or inaction. There are two other ways in which non-judicial precedents may play a role in the constitutional decision-making of, of other branches. The first is they may function as just one of the modes of legal discourse about the Constitution. In other words, just as judicial precedents are a modality of argumentation within, the, uh, within constitutional adjudication, uh, historical practices constitute a mode of argumentation both within Congress and about Congress. The second way in which non-judicial precedents may be accorded some weight to other branches, in other branches, is the extent to which historical practices may be construed as serving the same institutional considerations as do precedents within the courts. Courts defer to their own past judgments, apart from their merits, because they facilitate certain institutional considerations, namely consistency, stability, predictability, and reliance. Senators will, of course, defer to past practices within their own institutions for these reasons, and courts, as well as the executive branch, may recognize that non-judicial precedent facilitates each of these institutional concerns within the Senate. To the extent these concerns matter to the other branches, non-judicial precedent may be accorded further respect outside the legislative process. Which brings us back to the filibuster. The filibuster falls mainly within an area in which the Constitution clearly invests special power within the Senate, namely to devise the rules to govern its internal affairs. The Senate's procedural rules are matters that are of greatest importance to the Senate itself, and the institution has devoted considerable resources to their maintenance, including employing a full-time parliamentarian in the office of the Senate Legal Council to provide counsel on its rules. The Senate has also considered and reconsidered the legitimacy of the filibuster more than a dozen times. Each time it has come down squarely on the side of the constitutionality of the filibuster. If a court were to do this repeatedly, we would be inclined to think overruling itself on the matter is in question was not just becoming increasingly difficult, it would appear to be coming close to the point of achieving closure on the matter. There's no reason to think differently about the Senate's posture on an issue it has repeatedly embraced. As a practical matter, none of this means the filibuster is immune to amendment. There's always the option of amending Rule 22 in accordance with the rules, a past course which, as I've said, has worked and produced modifications to Rule 22. Even apart from challenging the filibuster on constitutional grounds, a senator could question the coherence of the policy of maintaining the filibuster as it is. In the meantime, the starting point for any discussion of the merits of the filibuster is not a blank slate. The Senate's historic practices constitute a serious obstacle to its dismantlement. They effectively create a contestable presu presumption of legitimacy. The fact that this presumption is still intact demonstrates in, in underappreciated ways how entrenchment, thought to be an impediment to the filibuster, 
is actually a feature of the legislative process. Now, talking about the filibuster leads to a final theme, which I'll just discuss briefly, and that's the relationship between the Constitution outside the court and the Constitution inside the court. There are a number of ways in, this in which this relationship is apparent. The first is rather obvious, and that is that the Constitution itself defines the jurisdiction and even the power of the uh, federal courts, including the Supreme Court. There is no constitutional law without the Constitution. It's just that simple. The second uh, way in which the Constitution outside the court matters is that the President and Congress are, I should say the President and the Senate, are instrumental in making decisions about judicial appointments. Uh, this is not news. Uh, there's nothing new about this. Uh, throughout our history, um, presidents have uh, taken these matters very seriously with the sole exception of Ulysses Grant. Um, and uh, I'm always amazed and, uh, over the fact that he had offered the chief justiceship to eight different people before somebody actually finally took it. Um, things have changed now. I expect um, usually I only have to offer it to one person. Uh, with regard to lower court appointments, presidents have also taken those seriously as well. And here they've taken ideology very much into account. They've taken into account the composition and direction of the federal courts. The Senate, too, has taken its responsibility in this realm quite seriously. And so the Senate has also determined that uh, it has a say or ought to have a say uh, in deciding uh, who serves as a federal judge. What this has led to is one of two things. It's led to either a lot of conflict or it's led to some accommodation. Every era uh, is defined by its mixture of accommodation and conflict over judicial appointments. But in the end, the federal courts, and particularly the Supreme Court, are what the President and the Senate make it. Third, Congress and the presidency are essential for backing um, various judgments made by the Supreme Court. One common example cited in this instance is Brown versus Board of Education. Um, doesn't take a historian to know about the resistance to Brown when it came down. Um, but it appears as if that to the extent Brown's, uh, Brown was ever realized, and some would argue it's not ever been realized, but to the extent it ever was realized, it only occurred once Congress and the presidency fell behind it. And so there are many instances in which the court, in which Congress and the presidency are essential for ensuring that the judgments of the court are not just respected, but in fact secured. There is yet another way in which uh, Congress and the presidency influence what the court does, and that is that they also legitimize. Uh, particular attitudes and approaches to constitutional interpretation. And by that, I mean that a, a particular approach, such as original understanding, is not made legitimate, I think, because a particular justice uses it. That is an example of it. And I suppose that might be pertinent to, to its legitimacy. But it becomes legitimate precisely because presidents and senators choose to make that a relevant basis for evaluating future appointments to either the lower courts or to the Supreme Court. Take, for example, um, 
the uh, 1980s. Why was original understanding so important in the 1980s? Well, one reason it was important in the 1980s was not because there were a lot of judges deciding cases on the basis of original understanding. It's because the president and a number of Republican senators were citing original understanding as an essential feature, perhaps the indispensable basis, for making constitutional decisions. And I think that's the dynamic of constitutional interpretation. And what that does is it brings me very close to my conclusion. And here I have only sort of two brief comments to make. I've only really been talking about the tip of a very, very large iceberg. The Constitution outside the court is much bigger than I've even been able to sort of touch on it today. And so I just want to mention two brief examples of the Constitution outside the court and its relevance for today. The first actually um, was apparent uh, from today's news. If you look at the headlines today, and that is the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case of the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, you would say, how in the world is that at all show anything about the Constitution outside the court. But what we know about the case involving the constitutionality of uh, the Pledge of Allegiance is that eight justices will decide it. And with eight justices deciding the case, uh, the lower court decision striking down the Pledge of Allegiance will be affirmed if the court splits four to four, as is quite likely. You've got to be able to find five justices who would uphold the pledge, and that's five justices without Justice Scalia. The reason you don't have Justice Scalia is because he recused himself. And the reason he recused himself is because he gave a speech when a judge first, uh, when a lower court first struck down this uh, policy, and it was a speech in which he was critical of what the lower court had done. And he therefore recused himself. So we've got eight justices because of commentary on the Supreme Court outside the court. The second example is our own discourse. It has to do with the purpose of constitutional scholarship. And here I want to comment uh, to some extent on some uh, recent developments in confirmation hearings. Um, not long ago, uh, Michael McConnell um, formerly of the University of Chicago Law School and, and more recently of the University of Utah Law School was confirmed for a seat on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. In his confirmation hearings, um, uh, Judge McConnell, he get, later gets uh, confirmed, Judge McConnell suggested um, that, uh, or Judge McConnell was in fact confronted with uh, some of his writings, particularly writings in which he had been very critical of Roe versus Wade. And so he had to account for those writings and at the same time take a position that would accord with or somehow be, allow him to, to be acceptable to the majority in the Senate, which at that time happened to, be Dem happened to be Democrats. And what Judge McConnell said was a couple things. He first said that, well, some of that criticism was tongue-in-cheek. And then he said some of that criticism was also just merely there to be provocative. In case you don't know it, a lot of what law professors do is done for no better purpose than to be provocative. Um, and so I'm sorry if I fail in that regard today. Um, but I didn't, that was news to me. I didn't know that's, that's what uh, constitutional scholars were supposed to do. But the reason it becomes important is because it makes us wonder 
why it is people are then writing about the Constitution, what significance should we attach to such constitutional commentary? In Judge McConnell's case, I think it's fair to say that a major reason why he was chosen for a judicial appointment was his writings. Even if he wasn't fully serious all the time, even if he was merely trying to be provocative, his writings were a major reason for his appointment. Yet we're left with the difficulty of having to deal with the possibility that if we're a court or if we're members of Congress and we're reading somebody's scholarship, we have to wonder, okay, is this something on which we can rely? Or is this something which he was merely or she was merely trying to be provocative? How do we, what do we make of this piece in the Harvard Law Review or whatever? What, what sense do we give to it? Um, um, now, I suppose you could say, well, all you've got to do then is just be skeptical of everything you read in a Law Review article, sort of take it on its merits. Fair enough. But when you read them, they appear to be at least attempting to be meritorious arguments. Um, and the other danger, of course, the other problem is that people oftentimes will gravitate towards the articles which support their positions, even if they aren't either serious or comprehensive, which leads us back with the basic problem of what do we do with this scholarship? Um, scholars typically, at least I thought, had two purposes in writing, uh, besides getting tenure, I should say. Uh, the first uh, was to speak the truth, however they saw it. You know, so let the chips fall where they went. The second was to speak truth to power. Both of those seem to me to be perfectly legitimate grounds on which to then sort of evaluate a piece of scholarship. Uh, yet the difficulty we've got is if Judge McConnell is right, then we find ourselves in a quandary. We don't know what to take serious. Um, we don't know uh, when somebody's uh, perhaps being serious or not serious, when somebody's um, perhaps just trying to be provocative, when they're not trying to be provocative. But I think the bigger problem is that we are also going to have to recognize that neutrality in constitutional scholarship is, um, is evaporating. People, as I said, tend to gravitate towards the articles that tend to support their positions. Just that simple. People are either accepted because they've said certain things or rejected because they've said certain things. And so the question that I'm, which I want to close is whether or not it is possible to talk today about what neutral criteria for evaluating constitutional arguments outside the court. And I leave that question hanging because I'll spend much of the rest of my career trying to answer that. Thanks. All right, the floor is open for uh, questions. Our custom in the Madison program is to reserve a little time at the beginning of the question uh, period for our students. We interpret the term student very broadly, <laughs> but there are limits. Undergraduates, graduate students, any high school students who happen to be? But not former so, students. Uh, foreign students, yeah. We're, <laughs> no, you know, former no students. Boundaries. Uh, so do any, do any of our students, I know there's some students here from the constitutional interpretation uh, class. Does any, do any of our students have a Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. well, you mentioned your previous debates about the role of the filibuster within the Senate. And I was wondering if any of those debates were about other than like inter-Senate uh, conflicts, if any of them involved a presidential appointments, other than like, you know, what we saw in constituents go to Washington. And, you know, if so is the filibuster supposed to be, I guess, a check on executive power 
Well, filibusters are used against all sorts of things. They're used against legislation. Um, that's one thing they're used against. And they're used against all kinds of presidential appointments. So it's not just judicial appointments. It would be every other kind of uh, appointment. Um, but they are unique to the Senate. Uh, there's no other political institution in the world that uses the filibuster. It tells you something about its utility. Um, but the Senate's a unique political institution. You just have to ask a senator, and they'll tell you. It's a unique political, it's a unique political institution. Um, a lot of people think it's, the filibuster exists, as, a, as you just suggested in your question, as a check, uh, particularly on um, presidential power. Um, and it's a check that is thought to be important for the sake of allowing a significant minority to be heard. Uh, as a historical matter, that's why the Senate claims to have it, uh, claims to have the filibuster. It is a peculiar device which exists, uh, that again allows a substantial minority to be heard on a matter or otherwise what happens is you just simply have straight majority rule on everything uh, within the Senate. Um, and that may not necessarily be a bad thing, but that's not been how the Senate has conducted its business over the years. Other student questions? Uh, yes, Blake. Um, could you elaborate on why Justice Scalia would recuse himself from deliberations concerning the pledge case? Well, I, I, it's a, I'm not sure if I know what I read in the papers. <laughs> um, he, um, uh, and I must confess, I'm not sure what possessed him to do this, actually. But when this matter first uh, was arose in the federal courts, and when the lower courts first struck down the Pledge of Allegiance, he was giving a speech at around the same time, at which he then publicly said that he just, I mean, I can't quote him here, I don't have the speech in front of me, but he said in effect that, uh, he expressed it in that speech um, disagreement to some extent with what the lower court had done. Well, he must have known, of course, that that case was going to likely wind its way up to the Supreme Court. Nevertheless, he spoke publicly, and I think maybe to his credit, I think he has recused himself because I think he feels that he's, in a sense, um, kind of lost his appearance of neutrality on that issue. Um, like, actually, if you think about the confirmation hearings uh, that we've that we've witnessed, very often you'll see the judicial uh, nominee refusing to answer a question about a pressing issue that matters to a senator or a group of senators. Often it's about abortion. It might be about affirmative action or something. And they'll be hammering away, trying to get him to state his position on this issue. And, and that person, and this goes all the way back, if we look at the, uh, the uh, hearings in the 1950s, they were about the race issue and so forth. Uh, and the, the nominee resolutely refuses to answer. And he explains his refusal to answer by saying, if I gave you, if I expressed an opinion on this, I would then have to recuse myself from the matter if it came before me. I cannot give you an opinion on a case that uh, might come before me. Now, the senators are never satisfied with that answer, but here's a good example of the authenticity of that answer, whether it's a conservative or liberal Republican or Democrat. Here's a, a justice who did speak, probably without thinking, about an issue, expressed an opinion, and now he's forced to recuse himself. And the judicial canons also sort of present um, an arguable obstacle here as well. That's one of the things in which the nominees will typically rely, is the judicial canons in refusing to answer certain questions. And it's the recusal, though, typically is left to the justice. I mean, it's typically a matter that um, a justice will decide for himself or herself, though I suspect there may be dialogue among 
the justices, but my, in, in this circumstance, you know, Justice Scalia may simply have felt that his appearance of either neutrality or at least um, of independence on this issue had, had been compromised. Uh, Justin Quirk? Uh, in sketching where we find the Constitution outside the court focused on sort of the elite level, the Senate, the President, um, other aspects of government, formally speaking. So I was wondering if there's another set of is there a place we find the Constitution outside the court, but also outside the government proper, so in popular discourse, in society? Um, is there a place for it? Is there some place you might look for it? Some place you might see it all right? No, it's a great question. And as I suggested uh, uh, at both at the beginning and sort of at the end, um, uh, there is significant constitutional discourse, um, not just in the halls of academia, um, <laughs> but uh, among uh, scholars, uh, both with each other and, and in formal ways and informal ways. But even beyond that, yes, I mean, the Constitution outside the court, perhaps most importantly, um, is really present whenever people sort of come together to think about and talk about the, the Constitution. Uh, that could be over the dinner table. It could be in the classroom. Um, it could be any number of places. Those become very important moments and gatherings because they are... Uh, I think fundamental to people's formulation of how they think about the Constitution. That's how it's done. I mean, whether you be a senator, whether you be a judge or whatever, typically speaking, you don't just sort of begin to think for the first time about constitutional issues when you're, you take an oath and go into an office. That's not typically how it happens. You've typically thought about it before. So everything that goes into the background and thinking about it before becomes relevant. And even apart from that sort of elite sphere, as you suggest, um, is perhaps the most important realm of all. And that's what everyone in society, you know, citizens, um, their activity, their deliberation over the Constitution. Now, it's unstructured, and that can be a problem. Um, it's also um, diffuse. Um, and it gets complicated by the 24-hour news cycle and the way the media operates these days, and that's a whole other subject. But it, um, you know, one thing to think about, for example, just about the impeachment, is that um, I think the media had a fairly big impact on what most people thought about the affair. Um, that, by affair, I mean the impeachment, by the way. <laughs> right. Um, and... Um, uh, and and we haven't quite figured out how we take that into account, but when you had polling data that would seem to sort of shape how some senators and, and others reacted, that polling data had to reflect to some extent what the media, the, uh, people's sort of uh, receipt of information from the media and what they did with that information. But it's, it's, a, it's a remarkably diffuse process, and I don't think we've fully captured its, uh, how it operates. In 1936, in the election of 1936, you had an example of the people performing an act of constitutional right. interpretation. That's argued sometimes. Do you think there's something to it? Yeah, I, I, definitely, too. You know, Robbie's obviously referring to was Roosevelt's re-election campaign. Um, and there, uh, Roosevelt explicitly sort of made a fundamental part of his re-election uh, his problems with the Supreme Court. He took it to the American people, tried to get a mandate from them, um, and... Uh, and then tried to use that mandate once he got back into office. So that's just one example. 
where there may be a so-called dialogue between a president or a leader and the people. Um, and uh, I referred to uh, President Bush's going to, or all around the South in the midterm elections, basically saying to people, look, if you want to stand, end this obstruction in the Senate, this is what you've got to do. So again, that's part of the dialogue. I think this is how it, elections are just one example, although as you well know from politics, and uh, uh, construing electoral returns is a, is a mysterious thing, um, a very difficult thing, um, and uh, very easy to, manip to manipulate. Any other student questions? All right, then the floor is open. You, ma'am. Has the substance of the filibuster changed over time? What they're fighting or arguing about is different today than it was when it began. Well, sure. Um, I mean, there, yeah, and it's a good question because we are certainly using the filibuster more. Well, I, actually, I should say we're not actually we're not using the filibuster more on judicial nominations. It's just being more successful right now on judicial nominations. Again, this is not the first time we've seen filibusters against judicial nominations. Um, they most of them have been unsuccessful, but we've seen a couple successful ones. More recently, but most filibusters are, for fairly obvious reasons, aimed at legislation. Um, and if you go back to 1790, uh, which I'll try to refrain from doing, um, um, there was a different process in place at that time. For uh, the filibuster, really didn't sort of begin to take shape as we know it until the 1806 period. Um, but but throughout the 19th century, filibusters were really leveled against everything, um, and they're oftentimes. Uh, well, because they're against everything, there isn't a common substance, really. Uh, now, remember, students, you're, the floor's over to you as well, but it's over to everybody, including you. Now, you, sir. I'd like to go back to Justice Scalia. Can, can you speak up a little? I'd like yeah. to go back to Justice Scalia. He's given no explanation as to why he's confused. Fair enough. Whatever are now going to hold some of the nominees. 
Well, uh, I, I don't know um, whether it's going to become uh, a larger problem or not. My sense is that it would not, and, I'll, and maybe this is sort of a reflection of my naivete. Um, I, I think that, um, based on my meager experience, Supreme Court justices tend to be pretty sophisticated people, um, and they tend to sort of have a pretty good idea of how to talk publicly, when to talk publicly, and so on and so forth. They're actually sometimes very adept at saying before discussion, okay, this, you know, making sure there's no media around and things like that. Um, and so I think maybe Rob, Robbie's right. It could be this is just a rare instance in which a justice, for whatever reason, didn't, you know, may have said something off the cuff and then ended up realizing it was a mistake. But I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, and some days I'm sure Justice Scalia or his papers will clarify this for us. But in any event, um, I think this is something that is totally within the ability of the justices to control. And certainly having seen this example, my guess is they'll learn from it. It is, by the way, another example of precedent outside the court. They mean the appointment of fewer law professors because well, that, law professors accumulate writings. Well, well that's already happening, yeah. <laughs> right. uh, yes, uh, Professor Hirsch. Uh, I'm a fewer law professor. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a good, that's a social good, right? <laughs> now we know what Justice Scalia is really up to. <laughs> Let's say that. And I'm sorry, and the, this is what? Um, the Constitution outside the court. Okay. Sure. Okay. Well, the, the training ought to be different for a thousand reasons, none of which really have, have to do with the Constitution outside the court, but that is another question. Um, uh, I, I think that um, the, uh, what I, I'm going to tell you a real quick story that sort of popped in my head as you were asking the question because it did seem to be, Relevant. Um, at one of the hearings, I testified twice this summer over the, on the constitutionality of the filibuster, and at one of the hearings at which I didn't testify. Um, and this really, I think, is a wonderful example of, but a rare example, of uh, of the Constitution outside the court. Uh, the, there was a hearing that was designed to test the constitutionality of the holds of, of holds in the legislative process. Holds are just basically what they sound like. Sound like. Um, it's just temporarily holding on to something, not letting a vote occur yet on the floor of the Senate because some uh, senators got a concern about it. So they're called temporary holds. So there was a hearing that uh, Senator Lott scheduled for the Rules Committee. I didn't call any law professors. It was a very smart move. Um, and 
They called four political scientists, each of whom had written rather extensively on the filibuster. And they were all his witnesses. They're all his witnesses. And they all testified against his proposal. And at one point, Senator Lott sort of says, I, I take it as 0-4 here? You know, I, and he was kind of stunned by it. But it was an example, I think, of speaking truth to power in a sense. I mean, people, they came in there and they said, this, you know, even though they'd written rather critically about holes and things like that, they said, no, this is still not a good proposal. In other words, your proposal is worse than the problem. Um, and that was a really remarkable, I think, thing. And the proposal to get rid of the holes is now scuttled. Uh, I mean, when all your witnesses line up against it, it doesn't really give you uh, much help. But in any event, I, I think that um, what I, I think all this comes down to is a question of accountability. Um, accountability sort of, uh, and I would even say public accountability, how we talk about the Constitution publicly. I think we ought to think about how we do that. It's a responsibility professors have, among other things, and I think we ought to undertake it very ser seriously and carefully. Not all do that. Some become pundits, and that's a bad thing um, because they, they uh, constitutional uh, arguments for them sort of lapse into one-liners and sound bites, and I don't think that's a responsible way to talk about the Constitution. So I, a lot of it, I think, depends on the forum in which we're operating. Um, the media is one thing, but if you're going to appear before Congress or appear in a court somewhere else, that's something for which we're often not trained, but I think it's something that we ought to take seriously and then perform uh, responsibly within that uh, forum. Dr. Vitterick? judgment on his part to speak on a particular case, but one has to believe that every member of the court formed their opinion about this case, mm -hmm. which is a high profile case. Sure. Um, very soon after the case came down and it to the next level. But there's this mythology around the court and they even though people who might watch how the, how the court operates uh, understand that justices bring a, a, a preconception to any case and, and way of thinking, um, whether they've written a lot about it or not, um, what's, what was at stake here was this, this whole genre of, of appearance, which is very important hmm. in the public mind and part of the Constitution outside the court. Well, I, I would, of course, agree with you. I, I think that um, one thing we, we don't think much about is how justices do contribute to constitutional understanding apart from what they do on the court itself. Um, it is actually, um, I don't know, decades ago, certainly 100 years ago, I think it was probably more common for justices to be speaking a little more publicly than they do these days. I mean, what I mean is speaking about the Constitution, in other words, going out and, and saying things. Um, but we've formulated different rules now and different judgments, um, and certainly justices do a lot of that, but I think they're just much more careful about their public remarks. Um, and I think it was Chief Justice Rehnquist who was, when he was at William Mary, actually once sort of mused that it's kind of a shame that we don't get out, quoting from him, we don't get out more often to talk about these issues, you know, publicly. But he was kind of saying it because he felt constrained. Uh, yes, ma'am? Oh, could you speak up louder? Could you yes. <laughs> okay. Good. Uh, 
Uh, yes, you, sir? <laughs> if I remember correctly, Gary Wills in Lincoln at Gettysburg made the argument that the uh, government was changed extra constitutionally. Uh, would you care to comment on that? <laughs> Sure. Um, well, as you may know, I mean, Dan Farber's got a great book out right now called Lincoln's Constitution. Um, Dan's a terrific constitutional scholar, and that's a great book, um, very thoughtful. And I think that one of the things I, I didn't talk about, perhaps should have talked about, was Constitution in time of war. That is certainly one of the most significant, um, uh, I think, um, significant uh, uh, instances in which the Constitution is really tested outside the courts. We typically don't expect courts and courts typically have not interfered with the decision-making of uh, presidents and Congress in, in, in the time of war. Uh, and we don't have a great record on that. But if you go back to uh, the Alien Sedition Act and go sort of all the way through to the present times, you don't, even with the war on terrorism, you shouldn't and cannot expect courts to really be the final word or even important word on the balance between national security and civil liberties in a time of war. Just it has not been the case. You cannot expect a court uh, in, during such a time to interfere with military policy. They're, historically, they have just been reluctant to do that. Um, Civil War is a, an example of that. And I think it's hard to argue, or it's certainly hard to defend um, what President Lincoln did um, on the basis of the Constitution. In terms of its results, I suppose we accept it. Um, but it may be telling that no other president has ever looked to what Lincoln did, at least in some areas, as precedent to follow. And I think that's their judgment on the legitimacy of what he did. Michael, do you, if I could follow that one up, do you have a view on uh, Lincoln's own uh, understanding of uh, the, the posture that the executive ought to take when it fundamentally disagrees with a Supreme Court decision? Uh, of course, I'm speaking of his reaction to Fred Scott right. in the first inaugural address. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great. And, I, I, and I very, uh, I've kind of alluded to it quite obliquely in talking about presidents and senators and how they approach judicial selection. Um, the uh, President Lincoln's position was, in fact, he even went back earlier in his career, um, to basically suggest that Dred Scott was illegitimate from the day it was decided. He never even spoke the words after sort of about 1857 or so. Um, and he essentially took the position that the president was entitled to have, uh, by virtue of his own oath, to simply take a different stand on the constitutional question. In other words, he could take a principled stand on, on the matter of whether or not um, slavery itself was constitutional. And so he relegated Dred Scott, the decision, really to the side. He never felt bound by it. He basically said, I think it, uh, sort of, it's binding on its facts, but beyond its facts, it's not. I think almost every president after that, if not before, agrees with the logic of what he did. Uh, and so every president, I think, only agrees with a Supreme Court decision or feels bound to the extent that they actually agree um, with its merits. Um, they don't simply follow them unless they are the party to the case. And whether it be Roe v. Wade, whether it be Dred Scott, it is quite common for presidents to disagree openly uh, and candidly with Supreme Court decisions and even say, I'm going to make appointments uh, to the contrary. And Lincoln did that. Um, and and as I think every president has sort of followed suit. Um, Professor Esperger. I wonder about one lesson uh, you think we should draw from uh, your story about the 
Republic busted with regard to Ad Mikva's assessment of the comparative competence of Congress and the Department of Interpreters. Because on the one hand, it's a, it's a great illustration of how a court-centered view of constitutional law and constitutional interpretation is incomplete. On, on the other hand, it doesn't necessarily show um, Congress acting in uh, as deliberative a manner as one would hope. Uh, you hear stories about national comfort getting ruled. <laughs> Well, you're right. I, I, I think that we, uh, well, I draw a number of different lessons from it. Um, the first is that I think that um, a lot depends on uh, whether or not, uh, how, a lot depends on sort of the political salience of the issue. The more a political salience an issue has, then I think you could expect people to take a little more attention, devote a little more time to it. Um, that's generally the case uh, within the Senate. So I think we can take some heart from that fact. Um, secondly, on the filibuster, there, there was a lot that actually occurred on the filibuster that deviates from normal practice. And this was itself a little bizarre. For example, it's not unusual in the Senate to ask the Congressional Research Service or even the Senate Office of Legal Counsel to give you some advice or background work on this. And senators didn't do that. So instead, they relied on sort of the hasty work of their staffs, uh, which were oftentimes result-driven and not very helpful. So they actually they, they made a decision to forgo some of their institutional support that I think would have helped inform their judgment better. The other thing that was a real problem with the filibuster, I think, was the hastiness with which all this came down. There were like three or four hearings in a two-month period. And that's not uh, a recipe for a great deal of success if what you're looking for is a high-level discussion. And I, I suppose the, only, the, the critical lesson I, I draw is that change tends to result from considered judgment. And the lack of change tends to result from these more expedient, sort of hasty decisions that we saw with the filibuster. So in other words, if you're going to see the filibuster change, it will likely change as a result of more careful, deliberate judgment that will bring people together. In a circumstance that we saw, it may just be as well that we didn't see change occur because the level of debate was not terribly good. Um, and people might have known that. The senators actually might have known that. And therefore, that might have colored or dictated to some extent what they did. In other words, they knew they weren't going to be successful, so they didn't devote that much time to it. Was your hand up, sir? The question is, what are the ramifications of a 4-4 vote if it comes to that in the pledge? Well, what happened, well there, there are a couple things that will happen. One is, of course, technically what happens is that that affirms the lower court judgment. However, if we've got a 4-4 vote, that in a sense keeps the issue alive for the Supreme Court. Um, and I think it then becomes an issue for the next election. And you may rest assured it will be an issue for the next election. And whoever the Democratic nominee is, I can, I can tell you this right now, thinks the Ninth Circuit screwed up. I can, yeah. And how Machiavellian do you think? <laughs> uh, yes, sir. <laughs>
it's a great question, but actually I think there are two questions there. To say that simple majority, the first, let me take the latter part first. Could a simple majority adopt a simple, a supermajority requirement? That's the latter, latter part of your statement. That's not what's happened with the filibuster, so I want to sort of leave that aside a little bit. Um, that is what happened by the way with the House. When the House adopted a rule requiring a supermajority vote for tax increases, and it re adopted that as a, as a procedural rule, um, I think that that would seem, for a variety of reasons, perhaps to be illegitimate because um, it, prime, uh, really from the, 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 the preconditions, that is to say the conditions under which it operated, would seem to be a problem, although in the House, the majority has the entitlement to make rules. So under the House rules, that you, uh, you, it, would seem, it would appear to be legitimate. But let me sort of go to the bigger question of entrenchment. It is a huge, complex matter, um, and I will try and cut to the chase on it, but we can talk about it a little bit later. The question is whether or not it is legitimate for a supermajority within the House at one point in time to ad adopt a rule that somehow makes it more difficult for a subsequent uh, Senate, particularly a majority within a subsequent Senate, to change that rule. It's a very complex thing. I think it turns, at least in my opinion, on this peculiar structure of the Senate. If you know about the, and I'm sure you do, the structure of the Senate, one-third of the Senate is up for re-election every two years, which means at the outset of a legislative session, you've got two-thirds carrying over their terms and only one-third that's sworn in to new terms. So here's the problem in the Senate. The problem in the Senate is it is a continuing body. There's no point in time in which a new majority is ever being sworn in. Who's the majorities that you're trying to, who is the majority at the outset of a session that you're trying to vindicate? That's the problem in the Senate. With every other legislative body, such as the House, it's not a problem because everybody in the House runs for re-election every two years. And so at the outset of each session, everybody's sworn in. And you've got a clear new majority there. But in the Senate, you've only got a, a third being sworn in at the outset of a session. And by, according to the Constitution, a quorum is a majority of the Senate. So the third cannot, third has no entitlement, no constitutional entitlement to anything within the Senate. And therefore, you've got this peculiar structure in the Senate. No other political body operates quite this way. And that's why the Senate has always viewed itself as a continuing body. In other, and, and so there's never a moment at which you could point to a new majority coming into power that could then claim an entitlement to change the rules. Anyway, that's, I don't know, if, I mean, that's the, the circumstance. Uh, yes, sir. The president's? No, 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 the judge. It's lower court. Oh, judge, oh uh, uh, I, I, I think you can probably take them at their word. I, I think the, the critical thing is that um, it's uh, well. Let me answer it with a question because that's what law professors do. Uh, <laughs> I rem there was a moment earlier this year, the, the Republicans are trying to think of a way to break the logjam in the Senate. And they thought of the following way to try and do it. They said to Democrats, 
Well, if uh, don't you agree that all lower court judges are obliged to follow precedent? And given that fact, why don't we then just all defer to each other other's lower court nominees? Doesn't matter who they are. We just defer to them because they're all bound by precedent. I don't know a single senator that would agree to that. Now, the question I would open up to everybody here is, would you agree to that? Do you think it's possible that, um, we, would you just defer to the nominee without ever knowing anything else about the person? I think the short answer to that question typically is no. And the reason is that the law, unfortunately, is often open to more than one interpretation. And the critical question is, what is the approach that somebody's taking to interpreting the law in question? And one wants to know what that approach is. But I, I think to go well, directly to your a Supreme Court nominee who said the same thing. Right. Now, well, I'm, you're, you're saying a Supreme Court nominee who says, I'm bound by Roe v. Wade and I'm not going to, it would be a very strange circumstance, but I think that um, uh, one reason for that is because there is, there is, as you say, a norm that applies to lower courts that doesn't apply to the Supreme Court. Lower courts are typically bound, as you say, by precedent. Um, and the Supreme Court justices are not typically bound by precedent. Um, I think typically, that's why I say, I said at the outset, I think you can typically take somebody's word if he's, of course, he's obliged, really, to follow Supreme Court precedent, regardless of whether he agrees with it or not. That much, I think, is clear. I'm just saying senators think there's enough flex in the system um, of interpretation that they are reluctant to just simply take that statement as sort of um, indicating anything reliable about what the person would do in a close case. Yeah, I can't think of anything in Lincoln that would have encouraged lower court judges to disregard yeah. a Supreme Court precedent. Now, plainly, Lincoln did not feel that the executive branch, the coordinate branch, was bound. And, and from his actions, we can assume he didn't believe that Congress, as an executive, as a coordinate branch, was, was bound. But I don't think there's anything that we can find, maybe Chris, do you know, where, where he was actually encouraging lower court judges not to abide by yeah. Right, you can, you, there may be circumstances under which you could, you could distinguish it, and that would not be uncommon. So, but I think typically a lower court judge will be bound by the Supreme Court precedent. Now, an interesting question, because I'm forced to ask it, um, is to wonder whether or not a lower court judge would be bound by all Supreme Court precedent, even, for example, Korematsu, which has never been overruled well, formally. Well, the standard way but, people, judge, right. lower court judges deal with that is they say, look, if I've got good reason to believe on the basis of what the justices right. have right. said, right. that they are prepared to overrule that precedent, then right. I feel... I'm in a uh, position to. Some lower courts did that with Buckley against the law. And that's what I was. And, and Robin, of course, is right. And that, of course, is almost exactly how the Third Circuit opinion in Casey reads. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Something that's really something they feel normatively bound by. That, was, that wasn't my question. My 
In the beginning, you sort of you uh, you did the thing which all law professors do, which is kind of uh, to dis dismiss their own institution. There's all these big problems with law schools. Um, <laughs> but you said that you know law professors can speak truth to power, and then the other thing when you're referring to um, Judge McConnell, uh, you kind of you know um, you know, we suggested that there's this other function of law schools, right? Which is law schools are farm teams for uh, for courts, and that suggests to me though that within this institution that's so central um, to the development of the court, uh, the Constitution outside the courts, so the law school is a major institution we have to really that whose sole function is that um, that there's a kind of tension within that institution between its two functions, right? The fact that McConnell, you said. You know, you, you, you gave probably more credence to the idea that he was being ironic um, or he was, just, he was just sort of throwing something out there. He was probably simulating um, at best. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, comment. But what it suggests is those two functions, the farm team for higher courts, uh, for courts, and the power are very, in very, very strong tension. And I guess one issue is, given that, that, the, that we expect law schools to do both of those things now, are those two functions really reconcilable? Well, I, I might say that. Right. Let me answer. I, I, I do want to make one comment on the the thing you, that was not part of your question. And that is that um, uh, I think there a lower court oftentimes has got to make determinations about, of course, what's controlling. You know, what what's going to controlling our decision making? More often than not, there's very stable precedent in Supreme Court. And so they don't have that problem. They, they know. Um, now, by the time Casey, for example, came down, Roe had been sort of attacked relentlessly, and it was, it was an unstable precedent. So it was perfectly within good reason for the Third Circuit to say, we're not sure what the controlling precedent is. So it, it's, it's, it's unusual rather than normal for uh, a lower court to be in a position where it's got to be predictive when it comes to Supreme Court precedent. Now, to come to your, your question, which is, I think, a variation on what I ended with, um, about whether it's, um, I, I think there is a tension uh, to some extent. And you've got to make a choice um, to some extent uh, with, when you talk about the Constitution uh, and you do so publicly. And the choice has to do with what your purpose is. Um, if your purpose is to help yourself, you know, self-aggrandizement, then I think you end up being uh, you sort of buy into that farm team model that you just mentioned. If you uh, conclude that your purpose is merely to sort of either speak truth or even truth to power to some extent by remaining faithful to your conception of the truth, then I think um, that's a fair construction of what your duty is, and you just follow through accordingly. But uh, partly why, what I wanted to do is to raise kind of a spotlight on the fact that Professors, not just law professors, um, are, have an educative responsibility, at least in my view, that is not just confined to the classroom. We speak, all of us speak, uh, in, in fora beyond just the classroom about public matters. And so I wanted to call attention to what duties do we have when we do that. But few of us speak as well as Professor Michael. Oh, thank, you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.